Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening. Tonight's guest, Jonathan Leffler. He is the Chief Domestic Operations Branch Officer at the uh, Aviation Weather Center, hosted out of Kansas City, Missouri. So we're happy to have Jonathan on with you with us tonight. Jonathan, we're happy to have you. We're going to be talking about uh, aviation weather and uh, the Aviation Weather Center. Maybe some of you folks knew about that, especially if you're a pilot or a weather or an airplane enthusiast or a weather enthusiast. Some of you may not. So hopefully tonight's conversation will help you look at uh, a new way that we look at weather, especially in the uh, the airline, the airplane industry. Um, this is a, a weather center that I guess doesn't really get a lot of publicity like the National Weather Service weather forecast offices. So uh, we're excited to uh, to talk about uh, the Aviation Weather Center tonight with Jonathan. So Jonathan, welcome to the program. Uh, we, we appreciate your time this uh, evening with us. We always like to uh, ask our first time guests this question. Uh, everybody has that story of how they got hooked into the weather world. So uh, what, is your, uh, what is your story? How did you get hooked into this uh, crazy weather world that we all uh, enjoy, I guess? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I've always had a fascination with weather. Uh, growing up in Colorado, you know, a lot of really cool cloud formations with the Rockies and the interaction with the train and stuff. And uh, <clears throat> I originally was a, a language major, foreign language major in school and took my first meteorology class and kind of fell in love with it and, and said, you know, let's be a scientist instead. So um, I started off in the U.S. Air Force as a weather officer, and that was in the late 90s. And I uh, spent about 13 years on active duty status, uh, had some really great assignments, uh, went to Germany, went to Hawaii and Japan and studied all sorts of cool weather, did some tropical meteorology for a while and and uh, in 2010, I, I really wanted to be in the weather service. And <clears throat> so I left active duty and uh, joined the National Weather Service uh, in Chicago. Uh, I was at the uh, Center Weather Service Unit, <clears throat> which is a small contingent of meteorologists at an FAA air route traffic control facility. Uh, and so they provide kind of specialized support to the controllers there to help keep all the planes flying in out of Chicago Center um, safely. And then in 2014, uh, I got picked up at the Aviation Weather Center. I came here as a, a senior aviation forecaster, uh, worked all the different desks uh, in the domestic branch. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, I was promoted to the warning coordination meteorologist, which uh, all the weather forecast offices have. It's your uh, outreach person and, and doing a lot of the uh, talks and whatnot. So I did that for a couple of years. And then <clears throat> I uh, got promoted to the domestic ops branch chief position uh, at the beginning of December of last year. So pretty new in the position here. Uh, we've got a great staff and we've got a great office of, of meteorologists. So really super proud of the work that uh, we do at AWC. Well, we're glad you're here and we're glad that you can educate us a little bit about aviation weather because I think I speak for the whole panel that we're, none of us are experts. Um, in fact, most of us are quite lacking in our aviation knowledge. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the Aviation Weather Center, the role that you fill um, and the products that you produce? Sure, no problem. So the Aviation Weather Center uh, is located in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, we are one of nine national centers under NCEP, and NCEP is the National Centers for Environmental Prediction. So if you think of like the National Hurricane Center or the Storm Prediction Center, Space Weather Prediction Center, uh, that's the whole NCEP group, and there's nine of us. Uh, <clears throat> so we have a little bit different focus than kind of the, the weather forecast offices. Those are the, the 122 of those that are spread across the, the U.S., and uh, they're the ones that are handling all your local weather, doing the warnings, you know, interfacing with emergency managers, and, and their area of responsibility is, is fairly tight around that radar. 
Uh, we've got a little bit broader focus. Uh, so we work a lot with the uh, FAA, that's our primary customers, uh, as well as some of our colleagues that work um, in the uh, air route traffic control centers, like I mentioned, the seat of issues, uh, as well as uh, some other folks that work with the FAA uh, at the FAA Command Center, which is back in uh, Virginia. So AWC itself has uh, four branches. We have uh, two uh, forecast branches. We have a domestic branch that I lead, and we have an international branch. They do uh, forecasts kind of around the globe. Uh, they also have some ties to the international community, so they work with uh, the, the Australians, the, the Brits, um, a variety of different countries that we coordinate weather forecasts with. Uh, we've got um, an aviation support branch that handles all of our web research operations, uh, data flow, uh, development. Uh, so they're really critical to keeping us, you know, up and running on a day-to-day -day basis. And then our fourth branch is the uh, National Aviation Meteorologist, or the NAMS. Uh, they're a group that works at the FAA Command Center, uh, and they're really at the tip of the spear uh, when it comes to decision support for the FAA. So the FAA really needs the Weather Service um, expertise and forecasts to figure out how to make, you know, the national airspace system work efficiently and safely. And so the NAMs are out there advising them of, you know, the timing and duration of events, you know, maybe it's an ice storm, maybe it's a severe weather event or a line of thunderstorms, you know, how can we get around it? Um, how much time do we need? Do we gotta thin the volume down, um, keep the airplane separated? So uh, that's that comprises the fourth branch. As far as the products that we do, uh, we issue, at least on the domestic side, we have primarily uh, graphical airmets, which are advisories. So that would be uh, moderate turbulence, moderate icing, um, IFR conditions like low clouds and visibility. Um, um, what else do we cover in there? Uh, we also have SIGMETs as well. We do SIGMETs for like severe conditions. So severe turbulence SIGMETs or severe icing. Um, on occasion, we'll have dust storm SIGMETs. Uh, you know, cold front comes through West Texas, kicks up the winds. Next thing you know, visibility drops to a quarter mile or so. And so we'll put out a segment for that. That's very dangerous for aircraft. Then on the international side, uh, there's volcanic ash segments um, that we, we don't really handle too much. Alaska handles a lot of that with the volcanic activity out there, but we could certainly you know pick up that if, if something happened up in Alaska. Uh, and then, um, yeah, that's pretty much the, the products we put out other than just the regular you know planning graphics and, and things that you can see on the web. All right. Yeah, Jonathan, one thing I wanted to ask was uh, about how uh, the uh, the public sector meteorologists work together uh, with the private sector. I, my understanding is there is a, a lot of uh, private sector meteorology that uh, with the uh, airlines and uh, some other smaller uh, carriers as well, and uh, some uh, as well as the uh, uh, the, the life flight type operations that some of them hire uh, meteorologists as well. I'm, I'm wondering uh, how closely you work with them. Not too terribly close um, outside of maybe conferences or technical exchange meetings. We do have some fairly uh, close ties to um, the helicopter community. We have a tool on our page called HEMS, which is a helicopter emergency medical services tool. So we meet uh, with them and provide some uh, data for them with their, you know, stratum of flights kind of off the deck. Um, as far as private meteorologists, we don't really interface too much with them. Uh, we do have uh, ties with the airlines have meteorologists, so United, American, uh, Southwest, and, and we'll collaborate some of our convective uh, forecasts with them. And then also 
we have some uh, stakeholder and partner groups that we meet up with kind of on a routine basis to talk about, you know, how the aviation enterprise, you know, can, can be more efficient or how we can, um, you know, leverage training or technology and, and kind of share that with each other. So it's, uh, it's not, I would say regular occurrences with, with those groups, but certainly, you know, we, we've had different collaborations from time to time. Jonathan, I know one thing that uh, if you're a passenger in airline or air flight, uh, you hit these pockets of turbulence. It's probably a very unsettling feeling. So I figure turbulence is one of the biggest things you guys look at forecasting wise. So uh, can you tell us what turbulence is and how you forecast it? So maybe uh, the people who are listening to this next time they get on an airplane and they hear the word turbulence, they'll have a better understanding of exactly what that is. Sure, no problem. Yeah, turbulence, you, you definitely hit it there. Uh, it's very uncomfortable. Um, as a meteorologist, I don't even like turbulence. In fact, I, I don't even like uh, light turbulence. I like the flight to be very smooth and, and non-eventful. Um, and it's basically a change in, in wind speed and direction. Uh, th- there are other factors that kind of play into that, but as a, on a basic level, that's what it is. You know, the atmosphere is a fluid, right? So uh, the way that it interacts with terrain or the way that temperature uh, changes over t- over time or over space. Uh, wind speed, direction changes over space and time uh, certainly affect how that aircraft flows within that fluid. Um, we do use a lot of uh, satellite imagery, satellite signatures to to recognize you know conditions that may be conducive of turbulence. Um, generically, you know, a washboard pattern uh, where you see kind of a wave motion would be indicating of air that's rising, falling. Uh, any reports of uh, ACSL clouds would be, you know, that wave motion as well. Um, which we look at surface observations. We also have uh, numerical models that give us a sense of uh, different indices tied to turbulence, whether it's uh, different um, divergence tendencies or or um, cyclonic tendencies or, or things that, that diagnostics that we run kind of from a physics perspective that can give us a sense of the weather. Uh, and then we really rely heavily on pilot reports uh, or PIREPs, as we call them. Uh, the pilots are really our ground truth, you know, in the atmosphere because we're, you know, we're in Kansas City. We have a coverage over the whole uh, country, at least for the domestic side. You know, I can't really see what's going on out in California or out in North Carolina. You know, so those pilot reports come in. We start assessing, you know, what are they telling us? What, what's the size of the aircraft? Uh, what's the intensity of the turbulence? Uh, is it more than one? Uh, can we tie it to an atmospheric phenomenon? Did a, did a cold front just come through? Or is it a, is it a gusty wind, a cold air convection uh, type of event? Or are they around thunderstorms? You know, thunderstorms by themselves wreak all sorts of havoc on the aviation community. Uh, so we look at all that and then we put out our forecasts and, you know, adjust as necessary. Yeah, that there's a, go ahead, Evan. I know you have a follow-up. I wanted to share um these news graphics that uh, are experimental, at least is what I've seen on Twitter. And I'm assuming you guys are now issuing these. And I highlighted this area because it covers uh, North and South Carolina. Uh, But this is, I guess, what you are issuing out. And I know the weather service in Greenville Spartanburg uh, retweets these out when it affects their area. But I I guess this is kind of uh, determining where the the biggest uh, area of turbulence is on this, on this forecast day. Yeah, so those, uh, so our, our, we call them non-convective SIGMETs, so that would be icing and turbulence. It's something not associated with thunderstorms. Uh, we have a, a, a script set up that tweets those out automatically, and so you're seeing that as kind of an experimental product. 
Um, that one right there is a severe turbulence for the low levels. So from surface to 12,000 feet. Um, and that based on the orientation and not really knowing kind of what the weather was, I guess that was um, early, early yeah, yesterday. Yeah. I'm guessing probably some strong surface winds or maybe some cold air advection. There was probably some uh, wave motion in the atmosphere uh, on maybe the, the low level water vapor or uh, we probably got some reports. Maybe there's some general aviation flights coming out of, um, you know, maybe Charlotte or uh, maybe up in the D.C. area, perhaps some of the smaller reports scattered along the, the front side of the Appalachians there. Um, and that just means warning level conditions. That's a SIGMED is the, the strongest thing that we can issue. Uh, that's that's our version of a tornado warning or a severe thunderstorm warning in the FO uh, parlance. So uh, when when a SIGMED comes out, if there is not a reason to be flying in that that uh, stratum, we do not advise pilots to fly through there. Um, those conditions can be uh, can be very dangerous. <clears throat> That's good to know. I, I, I saw these and I was like, well, that's interesting. But I, now, you know, this, when you word it, like this is our tornado warning, it's, it's good to know now how important those are. So I appreciate that. Evan, I'll, I'll toss it over to you. Yeah. Thanks, Scotty. Um, so it's kind of similar to what you just touched on, but can you talk about the role of mountain ranges in lower atmosphere turbulence? Uh, I would imagine that's a pretty big influencer on turbulence. It is. Uh, it, and this time of year in the cold season, it's really challenging uh, for us. Uh, our turbulence desk, I guess what I should have told you is how the, uh, how the desks were, were uh, structured at our office. Uh, we have a desk that's solely uh, dedicated to turbulence, and they do turbulence forecasting from off the California coast all the way off the uh, Atlantic coast. And so one person's kind of responsible for the whole country. And so you start thinking about all the different mountain ranges and, and flow of air, you know, whether it's the uh, Southern California mountain ranges that are that are affecting those smaller GA pilots coming out of L.A. or, you know, um, San Diego or place like that. Or you got the Rockies, you know, flights in out of Denver getting thumped with, you know, the air coming across the Rockies, <clears throat> even the, the Appalachians as well. You know, a lot of reports scatter from Atlanta to, to D.C. So that terrain, you know, the whole atmosphere is connected and and your understanding or our understanding, you know, of how that air how that motion works is really kind of key. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of satellite interrogation. Um, we don't really use radar per se. You know, the, the targets that radar painting isn't really, uh, outside of a thunderstorm isn't really super helpful. So we're looking at different channels on satellite, you know, water vapor, viz, um, and then <clears throat> obviously the, the pilot reports themselves. And then some of it's experience too. Um, what makes a really good meteorologist is learning what didn't work well yesterday and, and, you know, what I, I missed or I could have caught, you know, as a forecaster and, and then applying that lesson to the next time you see that. And uh, so terrain certainly plays a big factor in aviation and most definitely in the small aircraft. You know, I'm talking the single double seaters, you know, Cessnas, Pipers, Moonies. Uh, those are the ones that really are affected by that. The airlines will get it too, but, but they're, you know, they're taking off and they're shooting up to 10,000 feet pretty fast. And they're kind of out of that, <clears throat> that influence of the terrain, but the smaller guys, you know, that's really critical. Really got to pay attention to what's going on this time of year. Hey, Jonathan, this is Jordan McLeod. Um, I uh, wanted to ask you about, I guess, another big influencer of turbulence. We just talked about terrain, but uh, convection. So that's obviously a big, I'm sure a big component during the warm season. Um, 
what uh, what all goes in? Do you guys explicitly try to for, uh, forecast convection, and what what goes into that process? So when we started getting into thunderstorm season, uh, which is actually you know we're kind of getting into it now on the Gulf Coast from time to time, it it's kind of a challenge to distinguish between the convective and the non-convective environment. And the reason why I say that is because we have SIGMETs or warning level products that are designed exclusively for convection. So our convective SIGMETs encompass severe turbulence, severe icing, you know, wind shear. It's kind of the whole kitchen sink of, of aviation threats. Um, and we're trying to separate that from areas that are the non-convective. You know, it's due to, let's say, wind shear, um, you know, maybe it's mechanical turbulence, maybe there's, there's, you know, frontal turbulence, things like that. So where it becomes kind of tricky is let's say you've got a real big thunderstorm complex and you're getting all that serious <clears throat> blow off, you know, there's a, there's a spot where it's no longer really thunder convective turb per se, where the convective sigmet stops, but maybe we need to have a non-convective sigmet out for all the airplanes that are diverting around that thunderstorm. And then they're getting into this, you know, anvil cloud or, or some of that anti-cyclonic flow forward of an area of thunderstorms that's that can be conducive to, to the weather. So it's tricky because you you want to route the airplanes away from the thunderstorms to keep them safe. And the place that they end up going is where you run into maybe some more turbulence. And so um, it gets to be a bit of a challenge. And that's why our relationships with the FAA and our partners that are messaging, you know, to the different um, FAA uh, offices is so critical that we let them know, you know, kind of where the smooth area is to the best of our knowledge uh, in the air that you want to avoid. You know, we get these warnings via phone apps, uh, weather radios. How, how does a pilot get these uh, these SIGMET warnings and, and advisories? How do how do they acquire that? Is this something that uh, they fly into airspace and they're communicating with the tower or how is that done? So a couple ways. Um, so the controllers, you know, at the different air route traffic control centers are, are getting our products. They're relaying those on frequency. You know, um, pilots um, have access to, to apps like ForeFlight or, uh, you know, Garmin has some, I don't know if Garmin makes ForeFlight, but there's different, there's a variety of aviation apps that are out there that, that pull that data in. Uh, they can get them off our web. You know, that's kind of a, a manual process there. Um, and then, They'll also talk to other pilots, you know, communicating, you know, how the rides um, or, or just kind of spreading the knowledge around. So kind of like storm spotters, you know, helping each other out, finding where the good spots are to get that that visual. Pilots do the same thing. They're communicating. So maybe some crowdsourcing of information. Uh, but there's a variety of ways they can get it. Um, some of the limitations are when you get up in the air, maybe you don't have the same comms that you do on the ground. And so, you know, maybe when once you get airborne you know maybe you're a little bit blind in terms of data or fresh data so you're really kind of relying on that good pre-flight mentality and then getting back down safely so variety of ways that we communicate that um, we do not have an app uh, i'll just say that the weather service does not <clears throat> have an app i get asked that question a lot um, but we do have a lot of data and forecasts and ways that we broadcast that out so uh, the information is out there it's just a matter of a uh, way to get it Great. Thanks, Jonathan. Th this is Dan Whitaker here. Um, I just wanted to uh, know a couple of things about the aircrafts themselves. Are they, firstly, um, how are they, in what different ways kind of are they reporting uh, their data back to you? And secondly, I, I read about how um, drones are being used in the collection of um, 
data for aviation use as well. And if you know anything about that. Okay, so uh, with the pilot reports, you're right, that is that is kind of come in in a variety of different ways. Uh, sometimes it comes from, it goes from pilot to controller at an artsy to their traffic management unit, and then it's entered into what we call the system. Uh, sometimes there's a direct feed into our database. Uh, we have a way to submit pilot reports through our web interface. There are some technologies right now uh, where pilots can do that through mobile applications, uh, even to the extent of some of it being kind of auto-generated or pre-filled in based on the, the performance of the aircraft. That's kind of some new technologies being looked at now. So there's a variety of ways of that information getting back to us. Um, with regards to your question on drones, uh, that is kind of a new field that we haven't really kind of harnessed yet in terms of how we support the, the UAS community. I think primarily because you're flying so much lower than what we're usually forecasting for. You're in the lower, you know, maybe 1,000 or 500 feet or whatever. So the resolution of data at those levels, you know, we just don't have wind data every 50 feet or 100 feet. Um, the models just don't run down to that resolution. Um, so that's something that we have to kind of work with the FAA and figure out, okay, how do we do this? What, what are ways that we can provide weather, you know, and intelligence to these aviators so that, you know, they're not losing equipment or, you know, being safe. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've talked about uh, terrain being an issue, convection being an issue. Uh, what are some of the areas of the country that you think are tricky to forecast in terms of aviation? Are there certain ones that really stand out to you above any others? Yeah, there are. Well, it kind of depends on what you're forecasting. So uh, so we've got a turbulence desk that does the whole country. We have a desk that does icing uh, and we have a desk that does uh, we call ceiling visibility. Uh, that's kind of your IFR instrument flight rules. That's your low clouds and, and visibility type. And each of those desks, uh, at least on the domestic side, you know, have their unique challenges based on the time of year. So to kind of bring it home to you guys out in out North Carolina, um, you know, the, the Piedmont, kind of the influence of the Atlantic uh, maritime air mass and, and how the fog develops out there, you know, South Carolina fog, North Carolina fog, um, the timing of that, you know, is, is challenging. Um, fog development over Florida uh, or, or the Gulf Coast stratus, you know, is it going to get into the hill country of Texas? Is it going to get up to Dallas? Or is it going to kind of stay San Antonio and South is a challenge. Uh, West Coast stratus into San Francisco is a it's kind of a nightmare for their operations out there. There's a stratus season that we're, we're kind of getting up in on here uh, in the spring. And, you know, they got to slow down airplanes. You can't see the runway and you can't keep that separation. It really affects how efficient they can run the national airspace system or the NAS. And so marine stratus forecasting out West is, is hard. And, and the other thing that makes it hard too, is that we rely a lot, not only on pilot reports, but also surface observing stations. And there's just not a lot of, stations out west you know the, the rockies you get valley fog in colorado or you know uh, utah places like that and so out east you know central plains eastern u.s pretty dense data network you know we got a pretty good handle on where stuff is but out in the west it can be hard especially with a like a winter system moving through uh you know are they going to drop visibilities due to snow is it going to persist you know what's going on with um ceilings and visibility. So there are parts of the country that kind of tend to be tricky. Um, and some of it's just due to the, the way the weather works around the U S 
Um, but there's also considerations for the the data as well, that if you don't have a lot of data, it's hard to kind of get a good sense of, you know, what's going on. Well, Jonathan, we are getting close to the end here, uh, but we have a couple more questions for you before we close. Uh, one of them, you just mentioned that you have a desk dedicated to icing, and we haven't talked about icing hardly at all tonight. Um, I kind of, I mean, I, I know what icing is in terms of you know, the ice on my road, but can you explain how icing affects planes and what kind of conditions they um, result in dangerous icing? Yeah, absolutely. So, so aircraft are designed a specific way to achieve uh, lift and thrust based on the dynamics of the, you know, the airfoil and all that. And icing is basically super cooled water that will freeze and disrupt the flow of air over the, over the wings or the nose of the airplane or whatever, and cause that lift or that, that thrust to be impeded. Uh, it can come on really fast. You know, if you were to fly through like freezing drizzle or freezing rain, it's just going to glaze up the aircraft really fast. It could be a, a windshield problem. Uh, if you don't have a way to melt that off or get out of there, you know, it could be really dangerous. Uh, icing incidents have been something that we really take serious. Um, usually happens in the lower levels. Um, there's kind of an optimal temperature range, you know, roughly minus, uh, I'd say from zero to minus 10 Celsius or so. As you get colder, it's more ice crystals in the atmosphere. You tend not to have it just be kind of blowing snow over the wing of the aircraft, but that, that super cooled water is really what we're looking at uh, and how that kind of just smears over the aircraft surface and, and really disrupts that airflow. Um, and another reason why it's really critical is if you're, let's say you got a winter system and you're holding to get into an airport, you're, you're at like what, 10,000 feet or, you know, whatever altitude. And so you're flying in the cloud and you're accumulating this over time. So light icing over time becomes moderate or greater. So just by virtue of loitering out there, to try to get into the airport, uh, you'd be getting into rough situations. So knowing those levels is critical for the FAA uh, and certainly for GA pilots. Um, you know, if you don't have anti-icing equipment on, on board, you really need to pay attention to what you're flying into because it can get dangerous quick. Okay, great. And um, kind of coming back around to um, another uh, drone question I have. So, so I am a um, Part 107 holder, a, a certified um, drone pilot. And, um, you know, a lot of other people are getting their certifications or at least getting uh, drones that they can fly recreationally. Um, it's actually estimated six days ago, the FAA estimated over 869,000 registered drones in the U.S. Um, when... I took my test and learned about becoming a drone pilot. Um, one of the recommendations was to use the aviation weather site. And um, I see that as a popular recommendation for drone pilots. So kind of speaking to the majority of people who might be listening to this, who some of them might be interested in this, how can they use your website or uh, your resources to help with, with ultimately being a better drone pilot? Sure. So aviationweather.gov is, is where, you know, we like to send everybody. That's our website. That's our, our premier um, front page. Uh, we have a variety of tools on there. I think most applicable to the drones would be our HEMS tool. That's it's kind of designed for helicopters. It's going to have more kind of information on the lower levels. If you're not flying a drone at 10,000 feet, which you're probably not doing that, uh, then, then some of the other tools maybe aren't as helpful. But HEMS is really designed for helicopters. Uh, so that would be probably most applicable to drone. Uh, as we kind of talked earlier, you know, if you're at those really low levels, you know, we may not have the forecast or the data at, at, you know, 200 feet, 300 feet, you know, whatever you need. So that's something that we're looking at and, and ways to improve that as we get better technologies and, and uh, you know, models to help out with that. 
Uh, but certainly going to aviationweather.gov, going to the, um, I think it's under forecast or tools at the top, and then you'll see a variety of information in there as well. And uh, um, certainly encourage folks to look at that. And also just situational awareness, you know, just doing basic uh, meteorological analysis of the atmosphere uh, and knowing what you're getting into um, is, is really critical as well. Jonathan, one last question for me, and I'm not sure how much we can get into the weeds with this, but you keep mentioning it and it, it perks my interest because I know the FAA, you know, is, is a big, big organization that just helps all commercial flights, uh, rather passenger or freight get from one place to the other. I'm sure with uh, recent events, uh, when we recorded this, we just went through a record cold spell for a big portion of the, the country. We've had a lot of winter weather. Uh, we've had a lot of tropical activity. Uh, so my question to you is, is what is that communication like with you guys to the FAA? Sure. So that's primarily through um, our center weather service unit colleagues. So those are the, the meteorologists that are at the different air route traffic control centers. They're messaging talking to the FAA kind of on the regional level. And then from AWC itself, our, our national aviation meteorologists, the NAMs that I mentioned, that fourth branch, they're the, the guys that are embedded at the command center. That's where all these kind of national plans are put in place. And they're talking to uh, planners, they're talking to um, business uh, airline reps there. Uh, AOPA's got a rep there, that's Aircraft Owner Pilot Association. So there are ties to these different user groups through the FAA command center. And they're there messaging that um, around the, well, not around the clock, but uh, 16 hours a day or so. They've, they've got a pretty large presence there. Um, and that's looking at the forecast office forecast, their TAFs. It's looking at uh, our forecast. It's, it's um, you know, uh, collaborated products. So, so we are very much uh, communicating, you know, with the FAA where the, the concerns are and then getting to know what's important to them really helps us be smarter meteorologists right we can we could talk about things that are totally irrelevant and they're gonna say that's great we, we don't care but we really got to zero in on what is it you need to know as an operator so that we can help you do your job better and that's really where we want to focus as aviation meteorologists because it's it's real kind of unique field in, in meteorology very specialized uh and we want to keep folks safe so that they're not diverting you know, to some airport and spend a couple of days when they didn't want to be there. Uh, they want to go, you know, on vacation to their destination. Yeah, we, we see all these folks, you know, on the local news when there's a big event, they're spending the night in airports and stuff. And I know that is not a feeling that that people want to do. So thank you for that insight. I'm always fascinated with that because I know it's got to be a, a big uh, group of people working together to make sure people are getting to their destination. So, uh, Jonathan, thank you for your time tonight. We, we certainly appreciate it. I know you plugged the website a little bit earlier, uh, but we'd love to give you the opportunity again to uh, give out that information for maybe some followers who are interested in aviation weather or getting into drone pilots uh, or even a pilot themselves, how can they uh, come across your products? Yeah, if you go to uh, aviationweather.gov, uh, there's uh, all of our products and forecasts are on there. There's also some contact us uh, links on there as well. Uh, so I see those web mails that come through and, and our office you know, respond to you as, as well. Uh, you could also reach out to your uh, local forecast office. There's aviation uh, functions in those offices as well. So if you want to talk to the the WCM at those offices or, or any of your contacts that way. Um, and then just through user groups, if you're a part of AOPA or you're part of other, you know, flying organizations, uh, there are contacts back, you know, to the weather service. So love to uh, help people be smarter and safer when they fly. That's why we do our job. That's why we love it and take it so serious. And 
and I want folks to be prepared. Well, Jonathan, thank you for your time tonight. We appreciate it and uh, definitely learned a lot. And we hope you guys who are watching or listening tonight uh, did as well. We hope you have a great evening. We'll see you next time here on the Carolina Weather Group.